support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington. What up, y'all? I'm Torre, a 36-year-old writer and TV reporter living in Brooklyn, New York. I love to be challenged and to play rough. Now, I'm going way out of my comfort zone. Each week, I'm throwing myself in the deep end, studying a new skill, then facing a dangerous challenge. It'll be a roller coaster like nothing I've ever experienced. But hey, I'll try anything once. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. That was Toure, our guest today, from his TV show, I'll Try Anything Once. What does it mean to be black in America today? Well, according to Toure, the writer and cultural commentator, there are 40-plus million blacks in America. There are 40 million ways to be black. The same is true for Asian Americans, Latino Americans, white Americans. Toure's point in his lectures and his book, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, What It Means to Be Black Now, is that we are individuals. We carry with us our history, our identity, but we need to remember we are unique, each one of us. Don't judge because we'll miss that uniqueness. It's a simple point, but one that escapes most of us most of the time. Touré was in town as part of the University of Washington's Graduate School and the University of Washington Alumni Association's Equity and Difference Lecture Series. It's been a series of talks that expose and explain transgressions and struggles, both personal and institutional, experienced by too many people in our communities today. Touré's talk was on microaggression, power, privilege, and everyday life. Microaggressions, the quiet, sometimes unintended, sometimes intentional slights, racist, sexist, that make a person feel underestimated, undervalued. We spoke before his lecture at the University of Washington. Touré is a journalist, a TV commentator. So, he asks questions. He had a few for me. A warning, there is some explicit language in this interview. Who was the most famous person you interviewed? Oh, well, Carter, Clinton, Obama. You interviewed Jimmy Car You interviewed President Obama? It wasn't president then. You interviewed Senator Obama? 2007, it was great. President Clinton? President Clinton, yeah, at, at 2008, because we were able to get Clinton because it was all the, you know, who's the Washington State caucuses. He was coming through. It was great. I didn't get to meet Clinton. Though. Clinton was on the phone. Okay. And Carter, was Carter face-to-face? -face? Twice. While he was president? No, no, no. After? No. Yeah. He's, you know, he's written a lot of books. Yeah. So he wrote a book on faith. He wrote a book on, he wrote a poetry book. So we got all the book tour people, and it was right. wonderful. Wait, who on the, who on the right? Oh, Tom DeLay. Uh, yeah, liberal. Not oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We were pretty liberal. <laughs> um, Tom DeLay. Uh, uh, see, terrible. What other right wing guys? Rich Lowry. <laughs> uh, um, um, that guy that defended uh, the Iraq War, wrote speeches for Bush. David Frum. Yeah. We all had from all the, the people you lot. must have run into all the time. Yeah, I mean, I like from a lot. He's, um, He's I completely disagree with him. Yeah, but I find him always intelligent. Yes, well argued. I'll give you that. S he is one of the sane conservatives at this yes. point, and a lot of them <laughs> seem completely off the reservation. I mean, one thing I've been talking about. You were talking about Twitter before we started. That the Trump campaign was, is largely based on fantasy. Right. Most of the policies that he's pushing yeah, are fancy. No, no, nothing. You no. can't. Well, you can't deport 11 million people. Can't. It can't be done. 
can't right? build a wall. You can't build a wall on the unfenced area, right? You would have to actually claim some citizen's land, right? Like it just it can't be done, right? I mean, that area is pretty well fenced and beside the fact, you know, immigration is net zero, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> net yeah. negative, right? Um you you can't ban all Muslims. It's these are just not things that you can do. do you, does he have advisors? Have you looked at his He keeps saying no. He keeps saying he, he is his only that, advisor. Is that he, a guy who grabbed that woman's arm that's his only guy? His well, campaign not manager. even really. There was do you, do you watch um the circus, the John Heilman, Mark Halpern show? It's been on I, Showtime. No. This this whole season it's really interesting show. And they talk to Trump about uh Brussels, right? Brussels happens, and then he's on the morning news shows, and they're like, "So who did you talk to in between hearing the news reports and going on like morning show to the shows?" And he goes, "Nobody, I, right? I just talked to myself." And they put that to the Hillary people, and they're like, "Well, you know, we had a whole meeting, we collected information." They're like, "What do you think about one guy just going and like, you know, that's so insane?" I don't, we don't know what's happening in Wisconsin yet, but what do you, what do you think? Is Trump um, going to be the nominee? Or, you know, if he stopped in Wisconsin, then people are saying, oh, well, it's going to be Ted Cruz. I mean, it, it, this is an interesting second to talk about this, as you said, but that we don't yet know who's won Wisconsin. I think that, I, I mean, you keep hearing the rumbling. Like, they're letting you know, like, if he doesn't get, if he gets 1236, we are not giving him the nomination. Yeah. We hate him. We think he's the ruination of the party. We would rather take the short-term loss than live and with him and die in November in that way. So they figure they'll lose with Cruz, too. Yeah, well, I, I mean, can't see how they wouldn't, but I don't, I mean, you know, I think I don't get this country. I, I think so. they feel like we can, we can work with Ted <laughs> after Cleveland, right, to try to get something going. And they aren't conceding at all, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we can work with him. We can deal with him. Like, we can't deal with the crazy man. Like, we, like, we can't get behind that. We just can't put our machine behind that. I think it's so funny because Ted Cruz is every bit as crazy and much more egregious. Mm-hmm. in his policies mm-hmm. but it's just that he's got a little bit of a little bit of uh i don't even know what the hell it is well a willingness to work with other people sometimes because he's every bit is you know did you ever I, interview him I, no 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 never talked to any senator that big the you know remember how dennis rodman was like disruptive to the nba and it w- yeah. wasn't just the basketball but it was also the groining people on the ground the <laughs> elbowing people the wearing a dress so other guys would have their homophobia so ted cruz is like that for dc like he comes to dc just throwing bombs messing with people like you know controlling the house but like screwing people it's donald trump is like not from this sport. Like, he just came from another... He's not even <laughs> actually playing basketball. He's just like, stop everything. I'm in control. So we can't have you coming from... Uh, he... he Is that, he going to win New York? Yes, definitely. He'll win New York. Wow. He's, he's way ahead wow. in New York. I mean, that's... But that's New York Republicans. They're a weird... <sighs> that's derogatory. They're a different bunch <laughs> than other folks. Um... Uh, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll accept that. <laughs> uh, you know, um, Washington State had, a, in the 90s, had a surge of uh, fundamentalist Republicans take over the party. Mm. And they put up some candidates. Uh, a woman named Ellen Craswell had been a state legislature. Mm. Um, Linda Smith was a U.S. rep. Actually, looking back, Linda Smith 
fairly reasonable Republican. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Ellen Craswell was just a bonkers fundamentalist. And um, the Republicans, they've just never recovered at that level. They just, they've put up better candidates since. They've never really been able to recover. Um, but they do control the legislature, and that's how the Republicans have done it all around the country, right? Control the legislators. Yeah, yeah, they understand that level very well. They've understood the importance of the state and lower than that level. But we may be watching an historic moment. Oh, yeah. That that party sort of crashes and has to be reborn. Yeah. Perhaps even with an entirely different name, although that seems far-fetched. But some different sort of coalition has to be formed because we're not serving the people and the people are asking for something else. And there's sort of this wilderness. There's this wilderness. They're not serving the people. But what do you say to the fact that so much of their discontent is wrapped mm-hmm. up in racial animus. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think about a certain class of Americans feeling like they are losing the centrality of whiteness, mm-hmm. right? And and being the center of American life and global life is critical to their identity as white people, right? And I'm not it, saying all white people. I'm saying white people who believe, yeah, who believe in this that. way, yeah, right? Yeah. And thus are following Trump because they feel... Uh, I mean, like, look at who his enemies are, right? Mexican immigrants, right? Muslim terrorists, uh, China, <laughs> and Barack Obama, right? So it becomes the white man against every other sort of person in the world, women, you know, Asians, his women stuff really has come out really hard. I mean, he is never, he's, he, the subject that he is best prepared to discuss is Michelle Fields. There he has deep and long talking points. I'm not even being funny. There, like he is more prepared to talk about the nuances and the subtleties of the Michelle Fields situation as he sees it than he can go into depth on any foreign nation. Or Kelly, uh, Megan Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. But I mean, right? They're just sort of like sniping back and forth, right? But yeah. this is his Zapruder film, right? He's like, <laughs> you look at the tape. Look, she's touching me. I'm touching her. It's on. Th- it's like I rewound it to frame. Oh my god. I can't with this guy, and he and he never seems less of a man than when he suggests that he should sue her for touching him on the arm. Yeah, and yet it doesn't hurt him. Well, we'll see, because it seems like this has this started is to hurt. To, this is getting to be a lot. Yeah, because there's there was that long period when nothing he said right. hurt him because it continually proved that he wasn't a politician. Right, I could right. murder somebody in the street or whatever. Uh, I mean, any sorts of things that would kill a politician. But his whole thing was, I'm not a politician. I say these insane things, and it riles people up more. But you're getting more to a layer of like, who are you as a person? And, you know, the women's stuff has been offensive. And the abortion conversation with Chris Matthews was extraordinary television, um, revealing that he had never, he has not deeply thought about any of these issues at all, not even on his own private time. And, you know, I mean, you don't have to, like, have, have access, you know, to, to you know, the, the military briefings to understand what's going on in Syria, right? Like, that's a complicated technical situation, right? Like, 
we all have some relationship with abortion. I'm sorry. By this point, we all in life, we all have known someone or have seen someone or been someone who went through an abortion, right? In your family, your friendship, or yourself, right? Somewhere. So for him to not have a sophisticated opinion on it is absurd. You just reminded me of something. You've taken some hits from the haters. Tell me. Does that get to you? Um, no. I mean, no, that doesn't get to me. Is that the gladiatorial me. aspect of being a public figure? Well, no. I mean, that, I mean, y I mean, you expect that. Sure, you get used to that. But, like, I, I mean, I, I don't see it any other way. I mean, like, I, I just talked about that I went through an abortion, you know, and I'm not ashamed of that. That was the right thing for me and that woman to do at that time in our lives. And I don't think the millions of us who have gone through abortions should be ashamed. Well, what is it? What do you think it is that we get that what it is about Trump is what you said. He's he's I don't want to say truth telling because he's not telling the no, truth, no, but he all. is speaking to base passions yeah. that people don't otherwise hear beyond their bedrooms or their living rooms. Is that why he's successful? Um, I mean, yes, he's he will look. The Republican Party for a long time has been saying government itself is the problem, right? You think about Grover Norquist, right? We want to yeah, yeah. make it so small we can drown it in the bathtub, right? This has been the Republican mantra for, what, 30 years. You didn't think eventually somebody was going to come from outside of government, right? This is a group of people who've been increasingly... Um, sort of militaristic in their politics, going from Newt to, you know, Boehner to where we are now with McConnell, right, and the politics of obstruction. You didn't think eventually someone would come along and just throw bombs at the system. I mean, this is just taking these stances to the nth degree, right? They and use, this, he right, has supporters for it. Right, and always with the Southern strategy yeah. or demonizing yeah. gays or demonizing, uh, uh, you know, immigrants, Latinos and Hispanics. Well, he just took that to the nth degree. I mean, like to like the the idiotic nth degree. We're gonna like build a wall. Like it's gonna be thirty feet five, thirty feet high, and Mexico. I mean, like these are not serious things. That like a like a serious. This is like a movie, like Bullworth, but <laughs> an Bullworth. absurdist Bullworth. Yeah, yeah. And see, I was sort of thinking it might not occur until. That, that the fall might not occur until after the convention, that he would get the nomination and then he would fall. Maybe. I mean, that would be that would be the most frightening thing for that party. You know, I mean, I think about what might have happened to the Democrats if John Edwards' scandal had come out like mm -hmm. six months later, because he was looking really good mm -hmm. at that point. And it, it, if things had played out, I mean, like I was at Rolling Stone and he came to do one of these like room full of editors off the uh, off the record chats right and i was like so impressed with him and here's like you know a southerner who can talk the talk and make the northerners feel good and could do the thing on guns where rural and urban would both find him in the middle and I, i'm like oh yeah this is the guy he's a communicator he's the man um, if his scandal had come out six months later to where he got the nomination and then we found out about it the Democratic Party yeah. would have been ruined. It would implode. Well, there's the fear that that's what Hillary will get. She no, gets indicted no, in October. No, 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 not going to happen. Stop. stop. <laughs> that's some. That's some Rush <laughs> Levin, Alex Jones dream. Like, 
I mean, you hear Sean Hannity like, oh, maybe she'll be in an orange jumpsuit come November. Like, I mean, my God, what a lapdog. You, you see, like, the vast difference, right, between, like, Chris Matthews, right, who did something. I mean, just in terms of television, his interview with Trump was extraordinary. He was the first journalist to really see that you have to just choose one question and have 20 follow-ups on that question. Because if you only have five, the guy will the guy will obfuscate and he'll dodge out of it if he doesn't want to answer it. And, I mean, I counted. Chris had at least 25 follow-ups on the abortion question. What is the answer? What should women be punished? And he had, I mean, like, you know, Trump did this whole dodge, which was really interesting, right? Like very, this sort of emotional play, like you are at odds with your church. How do you feel about that? And Chris took that in and was like, I didn't forget what we were talking about. Like, you're not kidding. <laughs> I mean, and it's a very emotional thing to bring out of somebody. A lot of people would have been sort of afraid or lost their way and gone on to another subject. But he was locked on it like, okay, enough about my religion. Answer the question. <laughs> and finally, on like the 24th uh, repeat of the question, he finally gets an historic answer that changes the campaign. Hmm. I mean, it, to Sean Hannity, total lapdog. What can we get for you, Mr. President? Ha, ha, ha. Isn't Chris Matthews an idiot? Ha, ha, ha. Tell us what you're going to do in the first 100 days. Like... <laughs> He repeats the lie that Michelle Fields changed her story and Sean Hannity says nothing. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, it, you know, it's a shame. And Fox seems to not like him. Trump. Yeah. No, so I'm not don't. sure how he got maneuvered to Sean hey, uh, and didn't have to do. You have to go with Megan. Are you? Uh, I don't know. Are you going back on big TV? Um, I don't know. Do you want to? I would love to. I mean, live television is yeah, extraordinary, you know, and it's fun. And being part of talking about ideas and being like, you know, one of the thousand voices or 10,000 voices that are shaping the conversation. Like, I really enjoyed that, you know, and, and especially when I could bring in something that other people weren't talking about. Were you nobody on? was talking about Khalif Browder. And I was like, I'm going to talk about that. Um, you know, nobody was talking about... Um, you know, Renisha Boyd. And I was like, I need to talk about this. So I'm able to bring these stories in when other people weren't talking about it. Well, them. you're writing for Vice. Vice yeah. has TV. Yeah. Are they going to do a TV show with you? I don't think so. I mean, those are... They I mean, do Vice, interesting TV. Vice is... Viceland is extraordinary. Yeah. I love Viceland. Yeah, I would love network. to be a part of that. I mean... Well, I mean, your show a, you did about I'll Try Anything Once. Oh, that, wow. <laughs> That's a, that's a Viceland show, it right? It is a Viceland kind of show. It is. <laughs> wow, I can't believe you saw that. Very, very few people saw that show. <laughs> well, it's on the YouTube. But it was no, I know it, it, it's um that I mean that was crazy. I mean, like every show, I was physically injured. I know it was cool. <laughs> well, what was also cool was you wrote you did that because you also wrote about the the Dale Earnhardt thing, yeah. and then you also did the. the uh, I'll try anything. The um, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the demolition, demolition derby. derby. Yeah. And what I was struck by with that was how it, you you kind of um, embodied the argument that you make about microaggression and the and the power that that um, the the white glare and the need for the Teflon shield all mm. in that one incident mm. because you're. Um, you're getting ready to do demolition derby yeah. and you're having to spend half your time 
thinking about these people are clearly not being happy I mean, with me being there. Well, look, the 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 Stats family, S T A A T S, Larry Stats and his family, um, wife Marilyn and his whole clan. They were extraordinary. They were the super most Christian loving people that I could have asked for. Right. So they were protective and loving and took me as, you know, as a son and a brother and all that. But where we were, I was, it was let people let me know that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, if you had been standing here, someone would come by and say, you know, nigger, you can't be here. Move the fuck on. And, you know, I'm like, Wow, like how far are we from that period and what would happen if I didn't, you know, like, well, you wouldn't really want to find out. Yeah. So that's where we were, right? And I'm about to go do Demolition Derby with these sorts of people, right? Yeah. And you I'm like, physically at risk. am I insane right now? And I'm in the car about to go do the thing and they announce uh, my name and people are like giving me the finger in the audience at one point I was told that somebody went up to my camera crew and asked them are you with the nigger um, so I'm thinking all this and I'm about to go do this thing I, I don't know how I got through that this is brutal wild chaos I can't believe I'm doing this then I get caught in the logs again Jason's still in there, but Larry delivers the final blow and wins the dirt. Larry won? Yeah! Yeah, that was all right! That was fun, man! That round was fun! Yeah, I'll drop your first round. Thanks, man. Down. Thanks, man. Larry, you won! You got fourth or fifth! I got fifth! Oh, man. But it was sort of emblematic of the, argu the argument you make in your book. Yeah. Just distilled. Well, just, just, being, just being able and just being willing and able to do anything and engage in anything. There's nothing that, uh, there's nothing that I would say, I'm not going to do that because black people don't do that, right? Yeah. Like if I want to go skydiving or... You know, climbing to Mount Everest or yoga or whatever. You know, I mean, I, I've gotten into meditation lately. I don't, I don't know if other black, a lot of black people are doing that. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. A lot of my friends aren't talking about that. I'm like, I'm going to go do that because that's what I want to do. I hope a lot of people are doing it because it's pretty great. But you're also saying in that book, and maybe is this what you're saying? in, in when you're talking about microaggression, are you 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 are saying that look, forty million black people. 40 million ways to be black. Yeah. 40 million ways also to be an American. Yeah. Absolutely. Why is that is that a hard sell in when you when you talk to white audiences is that a hard sell? Um No, I don't think it's a hard sell. I don't think it's a hard sell to black audiences as Either. well. No, it's just something that I wanted to articulate and I think it's something that some people had thought of and they were like, "Yeah, duh." But, you know, I'm glad you're saying it. And other people were like, oh, I never thought about it that way. But I'm glad you're saying it. I mean, there were people who misunderstood what I meant. By post-black. Yeah. And they were. Because they thought you were saying post-racial. Yeah. Yeah. Colorblind. Yeah. Yeah. Which was not what I was talking about. And, you know, they'd get very offended because 
being black is part of our identity and I wouldn't want anyone to take it away from me either if I could actually identify what it is you would be taking away but I was going to pretend you. that I'm not black anymore like I wouldn't want that I don't want you to see me as colorblind right I don't want what I want is for you and others to not see blackness and downgrade me but I don't want you to not see it because this is part of who I am and part of my cultural legacy and I want to bring this with me that's what kind of a microaggression is, right? You, I, I see you. I see you. I hope I don't do it. I know we all carry prejudice, but yeah. I see you and I downgrade you. I don't know you as an individual. I downgrade you. Maybe, you know, we, there are many ways to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you, when you say something to someone that really sort of cuts at them as, you know, you're just Asian or you're just a woman or... You're just black, you know, you're just gay. What was the thing you had with uh, Eric Clapton and the editor? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this, yeah I'm not, this might be more than a microaggression, but yeah, when I was first yeah, at uh, Rolling Stone trying to come up and uh, I was asking him for a contract. I mean, I'd only been writing there about three years at this point and... Um, and you know, I was like, you know, come on, give me, you know, like give me a contract, let's do it. Because you know, you'd, you'd interviewed uh, Run DMC, Run DMC by then, and uh, they, I mean, yeah, I'd done, I'd done, done some good more pieces, than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a few by that point. That was only like three, two or three years into my whole Rolling Stone period. And the guy, what he said to me is like, "Well, we know you can write about Run DMC, but could you write about Eric Clapton?" And you know, I found that a terrible example as Clapton comes from the blues yeah so what a black person would have to say about him is more than relevant it could be like actually valuable and really interesting and a different take than a, than a white writer who's less interested in the blues or less feeling the blues in a different way might might do but um you know that categorization that assumption right you wouldn't assume that a white writer couldn't write about the black stuff right and if you did even you'd be like well that's the side stuff. This is the center stuff. And so you can do that. That's what really matters. That all of that is is you know is bullshit. You it's know? just so much of our culture, though. It's everywhere. These these attitudes. And you know what? Let me say. Black. Let me say. But yeah, I mean, like you know, there's all sorts of things. I mean, you have to you have to be very conscious and militate against it in yourself. I mean, like I think about these sorts of things, and uh, you know, I've committed um, sins. I've made mistakes. I remember a friend of mine. Uh, we were who you know who I love. We a group of us were arguing about the the Washington football team, right? And um, the team that will remain nameless. Mm, and uh, this uh, woman friend of mine said that uh, that was her team. And I said, you know, can you name one player? And she was very offended, and rightly so. And I didn't really fully realized what I had done until I saw how upset she was that, you know, I mean, like I would sort of fling that at her because she's a, a woman trying to talk about sports and, you know, I'm making some assumption that she can't name any of the players and I would never assume that a guy couldn't name any of the players on a team he said he liked. That was totally wrong. And, um, you know, and, and, and it sort of made me sort of open my eyes and think a little bit more about, my behavior and the things that I do. All right, I gotta ask you. I, she's gonna come. Yeah. In, she's gonna come in and take me out. So I, yeah. here's my last thing. Yeah. Um. You got married. 
yeah. to a woman of Lebanese descent. Yeah. And the New York Times reported that you had said, well, you know, when we have kids, better these kids are going to have to be raised African-American. They have to know African-American culture. Yeah. And she said, these kids are going to have to know Lebanese culture. Yeah. Um, that, that seems like a great and also mind-opening moment. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was. And, you know, think about their... Uh, yeah, they're bicultural. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the Lebanese side is a little bit at a disadvantage, right? Because black culture is all around them. Well, they live in New York. They live in Brooklyn and just sort of the 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 dominance of black culture in America and in their lives in terms of what I bring into their lives. You know, we listen to the, the Kanye album and we listen to Nina Simone and... You know, we listen to what, Miles Davis and dance hall and whatever. And, you know, so I mean, like they get a lot of black culture in their lives from me and they will continue to get that as we go forward. The Lebanese culture is a little bit harder to access, right? My wife can bring in her food and she can bring in her stories and she can bring in her traditions, but it's not something that you can, you know, work with all the time. But my kids are still babies. They're eight and seven and. So kids. how do you answer this question for them? Because this is a question you asked in your book. How do we create more Barack Obamas, proudly black and intellectual, and set extraordinarily high goals without fearing that race will keep them from achieving those goals? I mean, mm -hmm. you must be raising your kid with, kids with those attitudes, and yet they're going to need and, that and, Teflon shield. And yet my kids still aren't president. Great. Thanks. <laughs> You're making me feel guilty they're they're eight and seven they still haven't gotten into harvard what are you doing with your life man oh my god oh my god do you have kids do you have kids oh yeah and i think about how many kids do you have two and they're adult men you know at least at this stage at eight and seven we're just trying to get through the day and get your shirt eight don't wear seven, your shirt yeah. backwards yeah. and you know whatever it you know it's it's still baby stuff um you know we're still I mean, you know, race is mentioned occasionally here and there when they ask questions. But, you know, my son came home and said, you know, what is uh, he saw a sign that said, you know, I can't breathe. And so I had to explain to him what that meant. And as I was as and this is like a year or two ago, as I was explaining it, he says, uh, I realized he's not fully understanding what I'm saying. And I'm like, you know, well, what is a black person? And he says um, that he doesn't know. So I'm like, I'm like. I'm like, you know, so I'm like, what is a black, so a black person like Barack Obama and LeBron James? And he goes, okay, I got it. And he goes, Kevin Durant, yes. And Tom Brady, no. <laughs> so he's not, maybe he's now, that was about two years ago, but he wasn't even then at six and a half still fully aware of who's who. Um, sorry, they're dragging away. But thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Tori. Really, was fun. really nice talking to you. Torrey is the author of five books, a father, a husband, an occasional presence on your TV. He is currently writing for Vice and is working on more books and an upcoming podcast series. You can follow us at At Length with Steve Scher. You can find this show through the University of Washington Alumni Association's homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter at Stephen underscore Scher. Thanks for listening. That's all right. How did I do? You did good. Yeah, I did all right, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you got derby fever. Yeah. <laughs> Support for At Length comes from the University of Washington Graduate School, the University of Washington Alumni Association, and the Office of the President of the University of Washington.